Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that forces our guests to pick just three songs that will always take them back to their lives and their memories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Cat Apple, Cat's an Emmy Award-winning composer and musician who has released 36 albums and has composed music for film and television, including for National Geographic, PBS Nova, Carl Sagan, CNN, History Channel, MTV, NASA, and Apple Computers, among quite a few others. Cat has performed at the Metropolitan Museum of Art the United Nations, Guggenheim Museums, and in concerts all around the world with their 1980s San Francisco-based electronic space music duo, Emerald Web. She was a pioneer in electronic music, new age music, healing music, and music technology in general. For 20 years, her friend and legendary visual artist Robert Rauschenberg commissioned her to perform at his art openings, also all around the world. Alongside her work as a solo artist, she performs and records with anthropology band, the heavy metal band, Devin Townsend Project, and Sonic Combine. These days she's still composing music for film, traveling the world, and collecting indigenous flutes, which she uses in her compositions. She's also a founding member of Peace Vision, a media company for peace. I first met Kat back in the late 90s during the Liquid Cafe days in downtown Fort Myers, but we've never really talked all that much. But that's about to change, and I can't wait, so it's a good thing I don't have to. Hey there, Kat. How you doing? (laughs) Very good, Mike. It's nice to be here. Uh, it's nice to have you. Like I said, been on our list since the early days of this show, which is not that long ago. Um, what's the most recent flute or musical <laughs> instrument you've acquired? Well, the most recent was probably um, samples for my computer. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, which is uh, what Santa brought me this year. Oh. Yes. Um, by purchasing samples for your Recording studio is like uh, a huge investment in your um, research time to see if this is something I could actually use in my compositions, and it's also like buying a little bit of magic hmm, because you can buy a, like a, a section of an orchestra. Wow! Yeah, um, I don't want to get too far to the past and into the future, but you know, back when you were starting to make electronic music, could you even have envisioned where we're at in the world today in terms of digital technology and how it works with music? Well, I kind of dreamed about it. Hmm. Um, didn't know exactly how it would be implemented, but that's really what I was always kind of striving for as a orchestra at my fingertips. Hmm. Uh, where'd you grow up? Well. I was uh, – my childhood was uh, in northern Appalachia, actually. It was in a part of southern Ohio that is actually mountainous and uh, unfortunately very – a lot of poverty and uh, beautiful nature and uh, a lot of mountain music, roots music and uh, lived there until my teens. Years. How would you characterize the musical background? Was it the mountain music? Was that what was mostly happening around you? Most of the music had to be church music. Okay. But they made some pretty rocking church music back then. And that's actually, uh, as a musician, that's where I really understood, began to understand the concept of improvisation because those guys that would come in with violins, fiddles, sorry, hmm. and uh, dobros and mandolins, guitars, uh, of course, they didn't read sheet music at all. Right. And they did not need to. They were fantastic musicians. Uh, so I'd go to these backwoods song fest church meetings with my grandmother hmm. and grandfather. Uh, was there music being played on uh, turntables or on radios around the house? And if so, what kind of stations would, it, would that have been church music too? Um, well, no, because that wouldn't that would be my grandparents. Although they didn't have a, a record player, my my parents did, and uh, my father was very much into opera, hmm. and uh, he also had a pretty good collection of classical music. And uh, so that would have been my other influence. What was the first musical instrument that you came across? The first one I came across was a a little 
childhood uh, xylophone. Okay. I had asked my parents for a piano for Christmas, but um, what they brought me was one of those toys. Yeah. And I played it so much that I think I annoyed them and they did bring in an, a used upright piano. Oh, so you started on the piano. Yes, I did. Were you learning formally or were you just pecking around at it and trying to figure it out? I, a little of both. I had um, a teacher, a piano teacher, who taught me enough of the basics um, for me to realize that uh, I only wanted to do that to a certain point, um, meaning that I wanted to write my own music and as long as I would, was – Studying under her, it would be, here's another piece of sheet music for you to master. And that really wasn't what I was interested in. Were you learning some theory at that point where you can say, because the keyboard, it's all kind of laid out there in a way that can be explained fairly directly as far as this is this key and this is this key and this has this many black notes and this has this many black notes, that sort of thing? Well, I kind of extrapolated that because I did I did learn to read music and I do – read music um, at this point. But a lot of the understanding of chords, et cetera, was from me seeing it. And to me, it all looks like um, mathematics. And you can see it's intervals, of course. And so you kind of put it together in your own brain. Hmm. Yeah. Are you a singer? I, I am. I um, sang, um, especially in my early albums, Yes, I was the um, lead singer in my band. Hmm. What about the songwriting part of it? Uh, yes. All of the music I've done is either um, my own compositions. The music I do for film scores is all um, me writing by myself. But when I collaborate with musicians, I really enjoy collaborating compositionally with uh, usually a, a one other person that's a really good energy to have two people working on a composition. Were you an artsy kid in general? I mean, was music something that was obviously going to be your life or did that sort of just how it turned out? Um, I was always um, very shy, very quiet and um, very much a scientist. I had planned to be a um, a, a doctor, a physician. Hmm. Yes. When did um, when did it become clear that you weren't going to be a doctor or a physician? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think probably in college. I um, went to um, school for uh, in pre med, and um, I did not get. I got accepted to medical school, but did could not find a scholarship. So I thought, well, I'll just wait and go ahead and and tour with this band and then just haven't quite gotten back to <laughs> med school yet. <laughs> um, can you recall an early musical memory if I ask you to try to go back as far as you can, just something that, you know, crystallized? Um, yeah, I think listening to um, not only those uh, roots bands in the churches, that was always so exciting. That was like the most exciting party you'd ever go to in that area because there were no parties. There. <laughs> but um, yes, that that, and I think also listening to the records where it was like Beethoven and Mahler, I always loved, it created this whole dream journey. That's how I felt about it. Even at that age, because I think that probably still obviously resonates with you today. But yes, even at that young age, it kind of affected you that way. Yes, it it was so visual to me, and and um, I would see colors and and just images and you know magical kingdoms and hmm. and uh, I I didn't actually realize that not everyone. Just sees as like a almost a door opens up and, hmm. and yeah. Uh, before we get to your first song, um, do you remember the first music you owned yourself that you either bought or, or oh, were wow. gifted or something that you felt like was yours? Um, 
Gee, I I cannot recall. I can give it some thought, and if I come up with okay, it, okay, pops back up. Just spit, spit it I, out. Okay, well, we're going to get to your first song. Uh, what is it, and how would you like to handle the storytelling portion? This is part of that um, sitting, listening to a magical world from a record. It was probably an old seventy-eight vinyl because it was my dad's and he'd had it probably since college and um it was holst uh the planets which in this holst uh creates a different piece of music that describes each of the planets and the one that i chose is the one that describes neptune it's a very um dynamic piece so it's such soft very soft sections but this is the the piece that um just made me think i want to create music like that and then i mentioned that to a few adults and they said oh well honey this was created by a musical genius a man who lived a long time ago (laughs) there's no way you can create music like this hmm but you do. <laughs> I, it's, I still go, yeah, that's a big influence in my music, this, this particular composer. Would you like to listen to it? Let's listen to it. Let me just say when it, this was from 1916, just to give That's you, when it was? Not the recording, but that's when it was written. And it's, so it's The Planets Movement 7, Neptune the Mystic by Holst. Gustav Holst. Performed here by the London Symphony and Sir Colin Davis. Well, that's entrancing. (laughs) Doesn't that take you on a whole journey? Yeah, to say the least. What are you feeling and thinking when you're listening to it? Um, I just (laughs) – it's – it really just transports me to these fantastic places. Does it take you back to your childhood too or does it take you to the same places that it took you when you were a kid? The latter. It takes me to the same (laughs) magical places with – um, you know, beautiful nature and and uh, mermaids or whoever those people were at the end singing. Hmm. Um, I, I am familiar with the planets. I hadn't really ever listened to any of them, especially that intently. Uh, are each of the songs characterizing the nature of the planets in some way? I mean, is it connected to either like how we thought of them astrologically or how we know of them scientifically? Do you know whether that's correlated? It was more of the astrological or the the named the mythical after the, sort the of mythical okay. yes, um, like Neptune, and uh, because the um, the the Mars theme is very. I think that's the one I've probably heard. Yeah, if there's that, that one. one's probably the one because it has sort of some gusto to it, right? Yes, more warlike, combative. Or, yeah, yeah. Hmm. very dramatic. Um, very score-like. You yes. know what I mean? Yes. And and what I was thinking was, like, I could hear that as like the score of a science fiction film, right? Mm-hmm. But he wrote it, it in nineteen. 19- a lot about like. Like um, John Williams' yeah. Star Wars work, and he wrote that in 1916. Correct. So, do you do you think that he was sort of channeling the future, or did the future rip off him? I think, <laughs> where the twain shall meet. I think the future ripped uh, ripped him off quite a bit because I do hear excerpts of all those pieces in musical scores. Huh. Because I guess it's public domain. Why not? Oh, I, I didn't it. even think of that, right? <laughs> right. Huh. Do you ever sample music that way? Um, no, I, I haven't, but maybe Not I consciously start. anyway, right? <laughs> no, but the, <laughs> I would hear the, some of the um, runs or scales in some of those, and I'm thinking, yeah, I use very similar ones a lot. But that's because it, this has been such a big influence in, to me for that long. Do you see the math in the song, too, while it's transporting you to these other places? Uh, yes and no. It's not actually – it's not numbers. Not numbers. But, uh, yeah, numbers, you know what I mean, though. But I always, the, uh, when I try to explain it, I, I always put my fingers up and, like, intertwine them. That's kind of um, like they're um, – <laughs> it's – you can see the, the, in, the distance between the notes and where this one's going – how far it's going to the next one, and you know it's it is very mathematical, but not 
numbers. Where does music fit into your life these days? And I don't mean in terms of making it or Mm -hmm. collaborating. I mean, what do you listen to and how do you listen to it? (laughs) If you listen to much at all. I um, listen to a lot less of it when I'm on a project um, because if I'm working on a film score or an album or remastering something, I will have listened to music intently for hours. So sometimes I just want to either have silence or turn on the TV, you know. Um, But for – if I'm listening recreationally, I listen a lot to um, world – World music, mm-hmm. which mu- uses influences from other cultures, which I also enjoy doing, and um, some of the chill out music is good. Do you uh, have music like records and CDs and things like that still, or have you gone digital? I mostly listen digital, but I have a whole stack of <laughs> of uh, especially c- well CDs that friends have given me that was from their albums especially but I also have a whole small warehouse full of my uh, vinyl and all of that. Oh so, really? So you've held uh, on to it? Well I'm But you're not listening to it actively? I, no I really don't unless I'm listening to a test pressing because um, some of my music some of the records I have are from uh, old, the olden days, but a lot of them are brand new that are being released in Europe. So I have to listen to. Well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> well, what if that's kind of a cool thing? I sell more vinyl than CDs at this point. Huh? Of course, and, more streaming and downloads than either. But and so you're working then with the companies that make the raw vinyl. You're providing them with the master or whatever, the, the, and then they're sending you a sample and. Um, yes. Well, for these old, a lot of the new. Releases are from the old days of right. Emerald Web. So what I have done recently is had the old reel-to-reel tapes archived. They had to be baked in a specific oven to make the tape, the glue on the tape, um, viable again. You had to go like an archivist or something. I did. I had to go to an archivist. I had to learn enough about it to learn that that's what I needed to. Yeah, but you, you had kept all that. You had, mm-hmm. you had done a good enough job of data storage management that you had everything in a, in a way did. that could still be revived. Through hurricanes and everything, yes. Uh, and You it, should be proud. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say I lost a few things in a couple of moves just thinking, oh, I'll never need this and tossed it. But um, – most of the actual master tapes, I still have the reel-to-reels and now I have them digitized. So what I do for these like record labels in Europe, um, it's a record label. So I send them uh, the master because then the next process is after they're digitized, they have to be mastered. And so I usually oversee that. I don't do it myself, um, but I get a really good um, masterer. And then I send that master tape to the – and then I work on liner notes and and looking for old photos, which is <laughs> painful because <laughs> I have to go through negatives and, you know. Cause but I you kept negatives. negatives too. I did. That's like me. I've got boxes and boxes of <laughs> negatives and prints and stuff like that. So but I know you what don't you know mean. where everything is. Oh, no. And, it, and it's like um, – it can be very psychologically intense to go through all mm-hmm. that too. I'm sure you know what I mean. I do. <laughs> I do. Um, so you said you went to college or you wanted to go to college for med school, but you didn't get a scholarship. And so you ran yeah. off and joined a band basically. <laughs> um, did you – so you never studied music formally beyond whatever you may have gotten through? Well, I did study um, Electronic music and audio engineering. Okay. But there was not a degree in that back then because they didn't consider electronic music to be legitimate music. Right. And I did sign up. This was at USF in Tampa. I, I did um, sign up for a class uh, in flute. And I, you know, I, and there was a really good flute, uh, a flautist there who was teaching. And so I went to my first class. And she listened to me play and she said, okay, I'll take you as a student, um, but you have to promise that you'll quit your rock band because you're learning bad habits like that Jethro Tull crap, you know. Somebody asked me if Jethro Tull was going to come up during this. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't a really big um, influence, but, uh, you know, 
when you're playing rock flute, you don't just play all really sweet, um, sweetly. So she said, but you have to quit playing rock music and you have to quit your band. And I said, okay, I understand. And I went and dropped the class that, later that day. <laughs> um, uh, and the band was Emerald Web? No, that would have You weren't there <clears throat> this, yet. Right. Uh, this would have been before Emerald Web, but um, – I'm trying to remember the. I think the name of that band was Aftermath. Aftermath, was, two words. Was, no, one word. <laughs> I like it. Two and words it was, better. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Postmath. That would have been all right for me, but the other guys in the band wouldn't. <laughs> were not mathematicians at all. How did you wind up in 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 Tampa? Well, or I, in Florida in general, I guess. I did. I moved. Or my family moved to Fort Myers, and I, I attended. Edison College. Okay. And um, from there, I went to USF. Okay, understood. And um, yeah, and studied as I said. That's where I started by studying synthesizers and the audio engineering, which of course was very different from what is today. And when people ask if I've had <clears throat> um, formal training in all the synthesis and everything. Uh, I did study synthesizers, but they sure weren't anything like what we play today. Yeah, uh, they were monophonic analog. They were like Rube Goldberg machines compared <laughs> to today. I was looking some at of some them. of the ones that you referred to in on your website. Yeah. I was looking up the old pictures of where the flip the switches and plug into things and you were explaining how they didn't have um, you know permanent memory so if like the power went out during the show you lost all your program stuff I mean that was That's, all fascinating to me <laughs> yeah I, I one these were from liner notes from one of my upcoming vinyl releases I, I included that information one of my friends read it and I, they said you just really shouldn't include all that technical stuff nobody wants to read that and I said oh you don't know my oh, fans yeah I was going to say I found it fascinating <laughs> my Fans have, have emailed me asking if I have if I can send them a, co- a, a copy of the studio that I used to that Emerald Web played or, you know we recorded in uh, in California and they wanted to blow it up real big and put it up in their in the room I thought oh you know instead of trying to find a pinup this guy wants a yeah, photo of our studio a equipment. photo of a studio from 35 years <laughs> yeah, ago <laughs> that's right and it has the more vintage the better for these guys but uh, so how many bands were there before between aftermath and emerald web or was it fairly soon um, thereafter well it was uh, i met my husband who was the other member of emerald web emerald web was a duo and so and we were music um, composing comp- partners and um, eventually became husband and wife even. And uh, so there was another band um, before Emerald Web with a, a bunch of other guys and the two of us. And we played mostly original music, but I forget. We did have another band named for that band too. And then once we really started playing as a duet, it, that's when it became Emerald Web. Where'd the name come from? Well, it's um, – there's two stories. Okay. <laughs> One is that it was um, something that my husband saw in a dream. It was, you know, this wonderful uh, web with emeralds. But I think it also has a little bit to do with our favorite band at the time – which was King Crimson. Mm. And so it was kind of King Crimson, Emerald Web. We mm-hmm. kind of – it was like an, an homage to them. And um, uh, Emerald Web really began, began playing music very similar to – influenced by Holst <laughs> and this uh, King Crimson and people who are King Crimson fans are King Crimson fanatics. I right. mean, it's really um, 
It's we are a cult, <laughs> <laughs> not a cult, but a cult. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and and I was reading. So when you guys first got started, it was kind of like you didn't really have a genre for your music. But then you were talking about how then the sort of the new age music came in, and you, mm-hmm. had, you found you had a home. And then I was really interested in the idea that the cassettes became something that allowed you to propagate your music in a way that was, you know, it's kind of like today with iTunes, you know, that same sort of paradigm shift between mm-hmm. very difficult to conceivable for an individual. And it seems like you were right there on the cusp of that. Yes, absolutely. And because our first album really <clears throat> was not new agey at all. It was a lot more rock music in it. And it was um, fantasy based, like a sci-fi fantasy kind of theme. And it was called Dragon Wings and Wizard Tales. <laughs> so it was a whole... Were you guys uh, into fantasy stuff in general? Oh, my gosh, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All of them, you know, from Tolkien to the Earthsea Trilogy and, and uh, yes. So that really was the a lot of the um, influence. That's where a lot of the influence of our music What did your family think about where you were with all that compared to, you know, Appalachian church music? <laughs> well— my mother never liked any of the Appalachian church music okay. anyway. <laughs> she was more of a, a classical um, fan than um, – so when I w- was interested in the Appalachian church music, it kind of – I'm sure that annoyed her a bit. Right. That was grandma and grandpa's music. <laughs> grandma and grandpa's, yeah. yeah. Her mother and father. And um, – but um, my family never thought of it as – a career goal. It's like, I'm sure it's fun. Right. Keep, you know, stay in school. <laughs> <laughs> Give us some certainty, please. <laughs> right. But you need a job. Yeah. Right. But you were, you were apparently making some sort of a living doing it. Well, in the college days, we were making a bit of money. But then when uh, we, st- after we released that first album, if you're not, especially back then, if you didn't have product to sell, Still like today with merch, uh, you it's you really can't. It's hard to make a viable living if you don't have that product because the product is your calling card. Also, so our first album sold to a few uh, fans, but it got us into the record stores. It was in a whole bin. You know, they had different categories, and like if you know a band would have a whole row of their music, but we would be in with all the weird stuff that they can categorize. But then once cassettes became – and it was really the New Age market that started the distribution of cassettes as something somebody would buy. And they almost – I'm sure all of them were homemade the first – Right. There were not record houses, cassette houses that were dubbing them for people. And we couldn't really afford to do 100 at a time when we were first starting out. So uh, once that started happening, uh, you know, you, you also eliminate the middleman being a record label. And um, if you sell a cassette, I think there were probably 10 bucks, you know, you – that was Mate. yeah. That was <laughs> all your money, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, okay, well, let's get to your second song. Okay, uh, I will explain a little bit about it. This one is by King Crimson. Right. I brought him up, brought them up earlier, and um, this was so impressive to me. Uh, it was released originally in '69, but I think I heard it probably in '73. Like I really heard it, as you were saying, as, to really listen, and the whole album was amazing to me because it was very symphonic. It sounded like an orchestra, but it was just a few guys in a band, not a whole orchestra playing. So this was something that I could strive for. Having a whole orchestra play my music was something I wasn't ready to be able to do yet. So... um, The reason for that was the Mellotron, which you will hear in this song. Uh, The Mellotron was a keyboard that had tapes, literally, long spools of tape that when you click, when you press down on the keyboard, it like started a tape machine motor, capstans, 
to play this, uh, you know, one note for, I forget how many seconds it was. It wasn't long. So you could play a violin chord. Was the tape, it was reading off the tape? It was tape. So it was kind of <clears throat> like, like, like crazy early analog MIDI. Um, it, it was kind of, I guess, maybe, kind of. I mean, so each tape had a sound on it that then you could then play. Right. But it was all very mechanical. Yeah. Yeah, it was very mechanical, very limited because you had once, you know, you could be playing this beautiful, like cellos and violins. Oh, and then once the tape ran out, oh, you know. And then <laughs> so, how would you rewind the tape? Or you, would they, you, you'd lift up the keys. And, and then it would suck it back in? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you just couldn't sustain anything longer than the length of the tape. <laughs> well, you'd, you'd learn. And it's called a melotron. 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 Yes. And you, um, you would learn tricks like you knew this, the C was about to run you'd out. So you'd up. hit the E before it ran out. So. Uh-huh. Wow, what a that, what an interesting thought experiment that is as a musician to uh, talk yes. about getting your brain ready for other things. It was primitive, but quite groundbreaking too. Hmm. Yeah. Um, did you play one of those? Yes, my one of my bands from that time had one, and then we actually ended up getting an even rarer thing called an Vaco Orchestron that uh, took it to the next level with. Um, a disc that was a um, like you know the the sound strip on a on film. Yeah, it, this was made of that only in a in a disc form. So you, it, it would go on and on and on. You know, it, so there was no end of the tape. It would loop. It it was like a yeah, and it would just go around and around. But it it was pr- quite primitive yet. Um, complicated also. I would have been into all that stuff. <laughs> I guarantee you. <laughs> yes, um, uh, do you want to listen to the song? Do you want uh, to talk about yeah, more? What do you, you want to do? Uh, we'll, I will say just a couple of things about this to listen for the Mellotron. And this is um, a beautiful piece made by a band, and I've heard them play it uh, live, and it sounded very similar. And it was originally from 1969 by King Crimson. Uh, and the it has lyrics, and the lyrics at the time were so um, mysterical and mysterical. I like that, and um, <laughs> and um, powerful. And now they kind of just seem a little too dystopian for my taste. Interesting. But that would have been you know during the Vietnam War, and one of the <clears throat> lyrics is um, that kind of felt like you know anti-war. Um, Let's see. I'll just read this little part. When every man is torn apart with nightmares and with dreams, will no one lay the laurel wreath when silence drowns the screams? Hmm. See, this is also feeds into all of our fantasy yeah. and sci-fi. As, as, we, uh, as we go into it to listen for the Mellotron, mm-hmm. I wanted to play a little bit of one playing so that you can kind of get an ear for, for the sound of it. Great. And so that would have been the voice of like a, a pipe organ or something like that. I think that, that was supposed to be flutes. <laughs> flutes. <laughs> and but yes, uh, yes. And they use it on this this piece and it was well, I think actually if you had two mellotrons which they may have on this too, it would have And this music sounds a bit outdated, but when it's in context like this, I think you'll be able to hear. Well, I can't wait to hear. (laughs) Uh, Okay, this is uh, Epitaph uh, by King Crimson from their 1969 album In the Court of the Crimson King. This is the original full version. So what sort of memory lanes is that one taking you down? I hadn't really listened to the lyrics in that a long time. It, it almost made me cry, too. It yeah. still, still applies today. I know. That's what I was going to say. There's <laughs> certainly some um, unfortunate re- relevance. <laughs> yeah, that was Greg Lake singing that, an incredible vocalist. And Robert Fripp was actually the the one person that was consistently in – he was King Crimson, although he would tell you, I'm not King Crimson. It's the name of my band. I We ended up meeting him later. Oh, after, yeah? Yeah. 
Well, my husband, Bob Stoll, and I, we would go to concerts like King Crimson, and we're like such avid fans to an extreme. And we would we learned the technique of just hanging out backstage and um, getting an invitation into these um, after um, parties at the backstage or at the hotel or wherever they were staying. And it was uh, it worked because these were serious musicians and we'd get enough info to them really quickly about, oh, we're recording this. And they uh, and of course, they're in the in West Palm Beach or someplace where they don't really know people. So they would say, well, this – and we were a couple, which helped too. Uh, and they said, sure, why don't you – we'll talk about it. And so I met, you know, I've you know, been to backstage parties for with Genesis and, and King Crimson and uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra and Chakriya and um, Gentle Giant. I mean just a lot of those bands from back in the day. We didn't you guys didn't hurt that you guys were probably pretty cool? Yes, I, I guess we were. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why'd you pick that song of all the songs of theirs? Well, um, I think because it has such uh, amazing lyrics and a vocalist too. Um, it was one of the songs from their first album, and I remember hearing that first album. And the song that you might have heard, probably heard before from that album was The Court of the Crimson King. Mm-hmm. Ah. And I like that song, but it's um, not as representative of their music as this one is. Um, and we used to have um, listening parties. That's how uh, I really heard this song, this album first time was – Back then, it would be like Friday night. Okay, we're going to all go to whoever house, whosever apartment had, this was in college, whoever had the best sound system and the most tolerant roommate. And we'd have a listening party where everybody would come and um, each person was assigned, okay, it's your night, you get to bring. And we would sit and talk a little bit before and then turn the lights off and everybody would just listen to whatever album somebody put on. And it was really, you know, quite... And you you would be kicked out of the party if you wanted to talk during the music. We so. should bring those back. Because <laughs> <laughs> now everybody's at the party, you know, off and on some social media platform while they're at the party or yeah, whatever. Right. Well, the listening rooms are do are like that now. There's more and more listening rooms hmm. around. I, I guess mean, I never really put two and two together as to exactly what that meant. Listening rooms are where it's not appropriate to talk and... It's, they will tell you, okay, cell phone's off. <laughs> um, uh, that song and probably to some extent the rest of their songs, uh, kind of musical theatery, or um, at least, or, you know. Uh, well, that in that in that generation of them or genesis of them, but um, Robert Fripp went on to play all styles of music. I mean many styles of music, not all styles, but he had one album that was more of a heavy metal you know, and he also he's the guitarist. He was playing those beautiful, both electric guitar leads, and um, so he explored explores. Still, every, still around. Oh yeah, still on touring. I think it's the uh, like the fiftieth anniversary. Wow, I guess yeah. Sixty nine. That was his first. Their first album. Have so. you ever collaborated or gotten to sit in or anything? Because I know uh, you do a lot of sitting in. I would love to, but not with Robert Fripp. Uh, but uh, we, he mostly wanted to to talk, and we'd have tea and and talk. We went to got to be acquaintances with him, and through many different places. Uh, lived in New York for a while, and we knew him there too. So yeah. Hmm. How did you get into the film scoring stuff? Um, from early on, there was interest in our music for film scores. Um, but then once we moved to San Francisco in 1980 is really when um, we started really pursuing that because there was a lot going on in 1980, the 1980s in general in film and technology in San Francisco at that time. There was like a little studio <laughs> that created Star Wars in yeah, that area. Yeah. And uh, we were big 
Star Trek fanatics. So, um, yeah, we start. In fact, um, we did music for a, a young computer company um, f- uh, for their logo, Apple Computers. Hmm. And, of course, they, they said, well, we're going to be offering stock here soon. We can either pay you the $250 or you can get it You're in like, stock. We don't need the stock from you, man. Oh, no, we need to pay our <laughs> rent. Give me the $250. Oh, <laughs> probably in retrospect would have worked out pretty yeah, well. You can't have regrets. But <laughs> what, yeah, was, what was San Francisco like in 1980? Like we can all picture San Francisco in, you know, the summer of love and all that stuff. But then by 1980, the 70s had come. Disco mm-hmm. was – had peaked, and what was San Francisco like in that era? It was, um, it was actually a very, um, very cool man. It was groovy. Uh, it was there was <laughs> it was the beginning of the new age. That's why we moved there was because all of our, we were making up these cassettes and then putting them in a box. We were living in out out in New York at that time, and packing them up and sending them all to San Francisco. And I said one day, well, why don't we just move there instead of packing up all this? That must be where our fans are. So we did move there, and it was a very exciting time um, because there was a lot of the New Age, and we didn't really care for the the title New Age at first because um, it's kind of, you know, hippy-dippy. Right. We were hippies and proud of it. Yeah, kind of woo-woo-y. Yeah, but I do also – Appreciate the whole power of music and healing and meditation, but there were some of the um, you know people that were playing that were not really we were not that similar, but it was a big uh, a big genre that you could throw a bunch of different kinds of music in. So I was not going to bite the hand that fed me at that point, and uh, because we were electronic and we also played flutes and other acoustic instruments and world instruments. It, we really were the only ones doing that at that time. And um, so it was a, it was natural that we would get tagged to do films and, and we were getting our music out there so people would hear it, directors. Star Trek and Star Wars conventions that you played at. Talk about that for a little bit because <laughs> that's the early days of Star it Trek was, and Star Wars conventions. It, well, I guess Star Trek by then had been around for a while, but Star Wars was right off the press. It had an and early, probably in probably in 1980, they were still separate. No, I'm going to the Star Trek convention. I'm going to the Star Wars convention. And then I remember the year in San Francisco that they combined them. It's a big deal. And so you had somebody walking around and, uh, you know, like Chewy and somebody else with Spock ears. It was kind of fun. <laughs> and of course, the uh, different characters would show up for those. And I remember giving one of our cassettes to uh, DeForest Kelly in. And he said, oh, good. Thank you. I'll give it a whirl. And so, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was very exciting. We enjoyed it. And we were, we were, I still am, a nerd. You know, that's just, <laughs> them's my peeps, you know. <laughs> um, one of my early, like, uh, like my folks had some records and it wasn't a comprehensive collection, but one of the things they had was a vinyl album called Spaced Out Disco. Is that, do you remember that? At I all? think I remember hating like, that. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, no, it was like it was it was disco. It was riffing on the Star Wars themes from John Williams oh, yeah, through yeah. the lens of disco, <laughs> and it was it was it was kind of like that Star Wars uh, Christmas special. <laughs> yeah, I think it was pretty obnoxious. Our our band also played um, in. in punk bands at that time too. So oh, really? that was interesting. <laughs> we never used our. Our new age name because we would have been. You had to play undercover in the punk band. Yeah, yeah. Because that would have been crossing the streams, I guess. Well, yeah, and the new age people would hate us, and the punk people would probably have beat us up if they thought we were new age, Hmm. a new age band. But, um, so you said you're you you went to Edison. Mm-hmm. So when did you wind up back in Fort Myers then? I wound up back in Fort Myers in. Uh, 1900s, 1990. I, I was think I think later in 89. Gotcha. And when did you meet Robert Rauschenberg? 
1989. How did you meet Robert Rauschenberg? I was at a sushi and wine tasting party at the at the Fennings, who are well known in this area, and um, I saw all these um, bottle empty bottles of wine and started playing <laughs> on them, and my husband joined in, and then Bob Rauschenberg comes up. He hears what we're doing, and he picks up chopsticks because it's a sushi party and starts playing percussion on the different – like a xylem – playing the empty bottles and, and in his case, the full bottles too, the half-full bottles with as a xylophone. And we played and played and played until I think that Bob Rauschenberg spilled a bottle of wine with his dramatic playing – and so I said, well, that's it. We'll never be invited back to this place again for a party. And, of course, Fran Finning is still a very close friend of mine to this day. But that's when we met uh, Bob Ross. Did you know who he was when um, he came up and started banging on the wine glasses, wine bottles with you? I did. I um, Well, I was familiar with his art from studying about him but and knew he was in this area. But I had never met him. So that's when we met and um, just started up a conversation. I don't think anybody else got to talk to him the rest of that evening. And then not too long after that, we recorded an album together, uh, Rauschenberg, my husband Bob and I. Was that um, – I mean he was, he was big, you know? I mean he was super famous. Oh, yes. Did that uh, elevate you in terms of like exposure to your, your music because of your association with him? Um, well, I – not uh, as far as selling more albums. That particular album um, still has not sold a lot, but it hasn't really gotten out there. It's just, you know, I print up a few at a time, although now it, we're working on now a new release that's going to be more spectacular. But um, I think that the thing that was the most valuable to me was that after that, um, he and Rauschenberg invited me to play for his Art openings, as you mentioned in the intro, and so I met you know all these fan fantastic artists, uh, Jasper Johns, uh, you know that whole Jim Rosenquist, I, I loved him, and uh, Trisha Brown Dance Company, and Trisha Brown, and and Merce Cunningham, John Cage. So it was, I think, that was really the value to me of meeting, of being friends with Bob Rauschenberg. And unfortunately, my husband, who was the other member of Emerald Webb, who I mentioned before, he passed away in early 1990. So he never really had a chance to do all of these great mm. things with Rauschenberg. He would have he would have loved it. We I, with Rauschenberg, I did you know traveled to Nice and Italy and and I have to say, traveling with him is kind of like traveling with a rock star. I was going to try yeah. to get you to flesh flesh that out. <laughs> I mean, you know, the yeah. difference between hanging out with him in mm. town versus being with him when he's him there at these openings and around those people. Is it the same Bob? Was it, it? He was always the same. It was just different uh, situations and, you know, and different food. He loved all kinds of food. It would be kind of an example would be um, when I was traveling with him. I uh, went to Ferrara, Italy for one of his openings and um, flew in and checked into my room and had a message like, go to this restaurant. You have to be there a specific time. The mayor is throwing us a big party. And the mayor had taken this small restaurant and, you know, it was beautiful. And it was just the mayor and, and the dignitaries from the town or the city and whoever Bob wanted to invite, which was was me was one of them. So it was just amazing. <laughs> hmm. And you had to think on your feet because you never knew what was going to happen. He'd just say, oh, come on, we're going to go do this. And it's like you don't get a ch chance to prepare. You just got to go. So out there on Captiva, there's his, you know, property that they do the residency mm -hmm. out there now. Was yeah. that all there then too? Or had that, was mm -hmm. that just part of that? Or like were you hanging out there? Where was um, that all happening? Well, I he he owned the property, but there was just at the, those early days. It was just his 
what, what they call the beach house, which is the little stilt house. Yeah. It's a little wooden stilt house. I've been on its roof. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and then the fish house, which is on the other side. Oh, the fish the fish, fish house, house is the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. The, the uh, beach house is on – yeah, is right on the other side and it's it's a little bigger than the fish house but it's a, a, like a basically a one bedroom house and fantastic and that's that's where we recorded that that album actually did he play instruments well i mean besides I, wine bottles <laughs> <laughs> well see i always laugh when i when when i try to answer that because um people will often ask me oh was he a musician and I will say um, he played instruments <laughs> because he wasn't really a musician. He played instruments kind of like he painted, just you know, without rules and and with intensity and focus. And it was really fun. He was a great collaborator musically, but you would never know what he was going to do next. You know, mm. yeah. Um, okay, it's time for your third song. Okay. Uh, we could talk all day. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, back to uh, how are we doing? Yeah. Oh, that's okay. It's a podcast. We can go as long as <laughs> okay. we want. I won't be too wordy, but the reason this made this piece I chose one was it was one of my favorite musicians at the time, and he still is a fantastic synthesis, and it's all synthesizer that he plays, and. Uh, Van Gellis is his name. I'm sure you've heard his music because he won an Academy Award for film score for Chariots of Fire. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At about this same time, he um, – that same year, the TV show Cosmos mm-hmm. rele- was released. And the original Cosmos, not, the, original the, not Cosmos. the reboot with what's his name. Right. right. Not with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Right. With Carl Sagan. And Carl Sagan – was this amazing astronomer who brought astronomy to the masses. I mean, he was like a handsome handsome guy, very well-spoken, uh, and he was actually a sweetheart too, although not everybody knew him. And I remember uh, I would see him on TV, and as a kid, like a young teenager, I kind of had a real crush on him because he was like really smart and, you know, and, and uh, funny. And so... Um, he was producing this show, Cosmos, and my husband and I were watching it, blown away by it. It was um, it was so groundbreaking at the time, and heard all this music, and it was all space music on synthesizers. And we said, our music would have been perfect for this. How in the heck does a musician ever get to p- put music on, you know, a show like this? And um, actually. Three years later, Carl Sagan did contact us because Van Gellis, whom he was using for all those years, won an Academy Award and didn't have time to create custom music for Carl Sagan. It got too Sagan expensive for Carl, for Carl Sagan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And Van Gellis said he loved working with Carl, but that he just didn't have the time. So Carl Sagan asked around, well, who's the, you know, the next So you did not else? reach out to Carl Sagan. You did not send him a fan letter or something. He no. just found you. What did that feel like? His director, yeah, direct called us. And, um, well, that, that was amazing. It was, and he wanted, he, once they contacted us, they said, well, we're, we're putting together right now um, an episode of Nova. Can you, do music for it, and they had. I mean, they heard our albums, but they had n- never heard us compose custom, and that was probably the first time we really composed custom music for a, a whole TV show like that. Wow! Yeah, it must have been feeling pretty magical. I would think it was magical and and daunting. Yeah. And then I did. You get to spend time around him, and you know, in um, his presence. Well, most of what our communication was was on the phone, and I remember the first. And of course, this is way before caller ID or anything. The phone would ring, and you pick it up, and whatever happens, you you know, you're stuck. So I I answer the phone, and I hear this voice say, "Hello, cat," and it was Carl Sagan. <laughs> And I turned into the little schoolgirl with the crush again. <laughs> oh, hello. And I almost couldn't speak any. Like he's trying to ask me technical questions about the music. And it's, okay, I got to breathe here. And um, yeah, he was always, he and his wife, who uh, was his producer on Cosmos too, 
she was um, just a delightful person. They were both a pleasure to work with. Wow. Yeah. I'm jealous. Um, <laughs> you want to listen to this? Yeah, this is the theme song from Cosmos. Uh, uh, Heaven by, and Hell, right? By Van Gelis. By Van yeah. Gelis. All right, let's listen to it. When was the last time you listened to that? Um, it was a long time, but that uh, that still gets me that part. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. <laughs> I love I love the throwback to Chariots of Fire at the end of that. Yeah, you can hear that. <laughs> well, that came before Chariots of Fire, though, right? Um, oh, did they use the end of that? To... I was thinking it was the other way around. I was going to ask because yeah. it certainly had some of that dun dun dun. You know, I mean. Yeah, but well, he's he probably had a lot of tracks hanging out in the yeah. studio, so yeah. But it, I think you're right. It is like a an homage to that. 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 What did uh, uh, how did what you made for him in any way riff on that, or did it sound completely different? Could we find a recording of it? Uh, yeah, the PBS music- Nova. What early eighties? Oh yeah, look uh, it up, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the one that we did, I uh, we actually ended up doing several. It was um, about the Voyager spacecraft uh, in its flyby Neptune. But the, a lot of that particular episode, which was hosted by Lily Tomlin, so we created a lot of funny music for that one. She she hosted it as the um, the bag. This is going way back. The bag lady with the aluminum foil hat. <laughs> so um, she was the one who hosted. Oh, that was the one about uh, SETI. Search for extraterrestrial uh-huh, intelligence. Uh-huh. So we did several of them, but um, the album, um, our the Emerald Web album, Manatee Dreams of Neptune, has some of that music from those episodes too. Neptune has come back up. Right? Is there something about Neptune that you uh, are connected to? <laughs> well, I guess it must be. Yeah. Um, because I had forgotten that it was Voyager fly by Neptune. <laughs> and isn't it crazy that the Voyager is still sending back signals now? It's like left our our part of the universe and yes. it's still sending back signals after all this time. And it has that record on it. Yeah. None of my music. I was just going to say, you're not on there, are you? <laughs> no. I came in a little too late for Carl that Sagan was involved with that record, though, wasn't he? Like directly? Yes. yes. Yeah. Hmm. I was right. hanging out with some pretty cool people. Okay, Liquid Cafe days. Mm-hmm. And this is totally random. You may not remember because I know you've played a bazillion shows. But during my episode of this, I found a, a recording that we did at Liquid one day when this band from Canada showed up. And they had two fiddles. They had a stand-up bass. They had a guy that played the ukulele. And then he would play his brother's stand-up bass as a percussion instrument while his brother played it and pretended to play a f- trumpet out of his mouth. And you get up and play like three songs with him on that recording. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> on the recording. Yeah, oh, on the recording. Oh, you were recording. Uh, yeah, I've got like two CDs full. We had uh, one of our patrons had a real-time CD burner, one speed, back in the early days, so we could actually plug into the board and burn digital discs in ninety-nine, two thousand, two thousand one. That was high tech. Oh, it was stuff. very high tech <laughs> stuff. So I just did, I wanted to mention that because I. Oh, that'd be I, interesting. When, I don't know. It might be terrible, but uh, there it might have been terrible. some beers involved. Yeah, and, it was like a. It was early in the evening. I think you were. Yeah. Yeah, I think you had your faculties. <laughs> um, uh, have you ever played with an orchestra? I have. Um, I played. Um, Flute as a member, but I also – my husband and I um, were commissioned to do a piece for the um, Southwest Florida Symphony. Um, probably was – I can't remember what uh, – it was – I don't know if it was the 70s maybe. Hmm. Um, and it was a piece called um, Nova Suite. And so um, we used synthesizers and full chorus and uh, the full orchestra. Where was that being – where were they performing back then? Barbara B. Mann wasn't there. Was it there? This was Barbara Mann Hall. I guess so. It it was early days of it, I'm sure. Huh. Um, uh, You play with quite a few different bands, right? 
Yes. Just give us a quick summary of what they are and where they are and what they're like. <laughs> um, I play with um, a harpist and rhythm section a, a band called um, Catalyst, Gal- Catalyst Project, Anthropology Band, which is me and Nathan Dyke, a percussionist, world percussionist, and he plays Didge and Ngoni also. That's the two of us, and sometimes we um, can add a bass player or other uh, percussion instruments. And then I have um, – I play with the heavy metal band uh, Devin Townsend Project, which is a well-known band. And that is heavy metal? That's heavy. He's is that just the title a, or is that the no, genre? He's known <laughs> as a heavy metal artist, but uh, he um, emailed me a few years ago and said, uh, Dear Cat, you're the reason I became a musician, hmm. your music. And um, would you consider playing on one of my albums? So I – said, sure, send me your tracks and I'll pick a, a piece to play on. And then I actually played on the, every song on his album. So he had to take me on tour with him. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that with the heavy metal band. We just we did uh, – we were in the U.K. on a bus. Uh, wow. Uh, yeah, uh, with heavy metal guys, all tats and <laughs> – How long ago was that? Um, about, that was probably 10 years ago. Okay, okay. Um, no, maybe not quite 10 uh, and then I play with um, as a solo musician, and I and a lecturer uh, do concert talks, kind of thing. Talk I do one about um, music from uh, flutes from around the world, and I play tell stories about my travels and play a flute from that region. And then I also um, do a spoken word music thing about the music of the Calusa people. And then I have this wacky band called Sonic Combine, and um, that is Lawrence Getford, Lawrence Wojtek, and myself. And all three of us worked with Rauschenberg for years, and um, we play electronic music. I I incorporate flutes and electronics, and um, Lawrence Wojtek – I mean he creates sculptures that he plays music on. So that's a fun one. You know, you mentioned the playing flutes from around the world and to kind of lecturing. You did a short version of that at the Fort Myers Film Festival a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm the guy up in the booth. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was really, really um, – I could. I mean, it, you created quite a space because you played different flutes from elsewhere in the world. And at the end, and you said, now, if you heard this flute, this is what they'd be playing right here. And then you oh, played the Calusa flute. And we were in that old building right here on the bank of the Caloosahatchee River. And it was like – I mean, that was serious business. <laughs> if you don't get chills, you're yeah, not, no, that <laughs> you're was, not tuned in. That was serious. Yeah. Um, what's Peace Vision all about? Um, that's a project really um, founded by uh, John Buffar. I mean, I'm oh, one of the founding okay, members. Okay. And it's um, a media platform to um, to support all types of Good news, good projects, things that are um, good about the world and trying to find ways to help through peace and um, being uh, kind to each other. And um, there are a lot of people creating films and music that is based on from coming from a place of peace. So we're just trying to help network hmm. and create. And in fact, um, yeah, we – um, have the website is up and it's got content and I'm doing music for the website and and uh, you gonna write a book? You re- referred to that before we got started. Are you gonna write a I, book? I Seems am, like you've got some stories I, that you can I share. Know. That's I, I think I could just talk to you and we could just do the transcription. Okay, let's do that. You <laughs> want you want an interview editor? We'll work that out. <laughs> yeah, that, sounds, that would be great. That would be great. Uh, I do want to write a book, and I also want to write a screenplay of the adventure of my husband and I deciding, you know, in that room, making up cassettes, sending them to San Francisco, saying, let's move to San Francisco, and then getting into our old unreliable van, packing all of our equipment and, uh, and camping gear into the van and heading west. Uh, and saying, oh, we'll just move there. 
We've, I've, I've got like $422. That should be plenty to relocate in You San need to Francisco. write that screenplay because I could see that movie. And it and sounds like you've got the right connections and anecdotes from your life to be well, able to tell it with all I honesty. and to. you know. And we did concerts all the way across to make enough money for the next gas station. Uh, and that's what the soundtrack would be, that old-timey vintage synthesizer music. Yeah, hmm. and a rattle trap van. Um, okay, we're basically out of time. Um, what would your um, What would your fourteen year old self think of who you are today? I I would be amazed that I <laughs> could actually wouldn't have be, seen it coming. That I could actually be uh, have lived this long uh, and still, you know, in good health. I think I would be. I would say you should have taken the. Stock and apple. apple. stock. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I live true to who I am, and I'm a happy person, and I think I'm pretty kind. So I think I would be proud of myself. That's a great answer. Okay, um, before we read the credits and you play us out with a parting tune, uh, can you recommend three people who you think that uh, we should pursue for this show that you will maybe encourage to listen to it? To encourage to listen to it um, – Definitely. Um, Aida Bukovica, I don't think she would do it, but she is an amazing and very interesting person. Um, Lawrence Wojtek, definitely. Uh, he would be a great interview also. And, um, oh, there's so many. I have so many <laughs> interesting friends. Um, I think maybe um, Connie Bottinelli. Okay. Uh, she's a filmmaker and a talker, so she would be interesting too. Okay. Well, I, I, I recognize the first name. I definitely recognize the second name. I don't recognize the third name, but if you can help get us in touch with them, we would love to invite them to be on the show. Oh, absolutely. I'll tell her to get in touch with you. Okay. We got your flute out. What are we going to hear? Well, this piece tells the story of being out in the woods at night around the campfire you begin to hear the nature around you, the owls, maybe even wolves, somebody even singing along, and the night birds. And what kind of flute is that? This is a native North American flute. We make this podcast in the studios of WGCU Public Radio in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer and periodic host, like today's episode. Our executive producer is Chris Duffus. Our theme song was made by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. And for this week's parting tune, we're handing it off to Kat. Go ahead. Next time on Three Song Stories. Um, I'd never seen a Bob Fosse musical before. I'd only seen, you know, Fiddler and a couple of very mainstream musicals. And I was able to get like a cheap seat in the very front row and remember there being some very scantily clad women in it um, who moved with Bob Fosse very sexy moves and really enjoying that. (laughs) 